First John chapter three. Uh, we have been in this book for a little while now. Uh, if you jump in with us today, we are working our way through the book of First John, talking about what real Christianity looks like in a life uh, transformed by the love of God to live a life of love. Uh, that is exactly what Jesus has called us to, uh, loving one another just as he has loved us. We've been in this book. Uh, it's been really good for us. It's just shaped us. If you've been in the journey, you know uh, that it's been difficult. It's been encouraging. It's been convicting. It's been comforting. Uh, and if you haven't been a part of these messages, I encourage you to go online, pick these up. You can catch up with us. We'll be here just a few more weeks as we lead up to Thanksgiving. Well, today we're going to be looking at verses 19 through 24, 1 John 3, verses 19 through 24. Uh, I want to begin our time together uh, by reading these verses, and then I'll pray, and then we'll jump in from there. 1 John chapter 3, verses 19 through 24, and specifically this morning we're looking at verses 19 and 20. If you don't have a Bible, the words will be on the screen. The voice of Jesus speaks to us like this. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our hearts before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and he knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and we do what pleases him. And this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and we love one another just as he has commanded us. And whoever keeps his commandments abides in him and he in them. And by this, we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given to us. Let's pray together. Jesus, we pray in your name to the glory of the Father and by the power of the Holy Spirit that you would be with us in this moment. More than we need to hear anything that I have to say today, more than we need to even hear anything else in this room, we need to hear you breaking through our experience. Jesus, would your voice be present in this room? Would your spirit lead us into all truth? Would you rapture us up into a holy moment where we are confronted with your truth, we're confronted with who we are in your truth and who you are for us over your truth, God. Jesus, shape us as your people. This is your church. You are the king of this moment. You're the king of this church. Have us now. Conform us to your image, we pray. In Jesus' name, to the glory of the Father. Amen. Amen. Well, uh, if you knew how much the person next to you talked to themselves you might think they're a little bit crazy. If you knew how much the person sitting next to you this morning talked to themselves, you might think they're a little bit crazy. And you would go on thinking that this morning until you stop to realize how much you talk to yourself. And then you might think, man, I'm crazy too. And if talking to yourself means you're crazy, well then welcome to the party, Frontline Church, right? You see, the reality of the matter is every one of us in the room today have these moments, and I would say many moments, where there's this internal debate going on in our minds all the time, you know? So, so on the one hand, there's this voice that shows up, and it's the voice that's a part of us in our heads and in our minds that is just trying to carry out life. It's just trying to make decisions. It's just trying to do the next thing in front of you. It's trying to, to carry out the everyday things of life. But there's this other voice that rises up, and it's a voice that provides a constant commentary over your life in every situation or just about every situation you experience. And very often that commentary from that opposite voice, it's not a sympathetic commentary, right? And so this plays itself out in a variety of situations. I think one situation that maybe all of us could be familiar with is 
what it's like when you meet a new person for the first time. Maybe it's a new friend, it's a job interview, or maybe it's just a person that you meet and for whatever reason upon meeting them in those first five minutes of impressions, you go, I need to impress this person. There's that something inside of you. And so the conversation goes forward and at some point in the conversation, you think of something to say that you think would be really witty. You think it'd be really funny. You think it would sell the moment. And so it kind of mounts and the moment comes and you kind of go for it and you throw it out there. You throw that joke out there and it falls flat. Like it's just not funny at all. And the person looks, looks back at you and super weird. And what you thought was going to sell the moment just served to put you at a deficit. And when that happens, right, there's a, mo- there's, there's a voice inside of you that shows up. What are you doing? Why would you say that? You idiot. You're not funny. We're trying to make jokes here. And this shows up inside of you. And as soon as that happens, there's another voice that, voice that competes with that. And you're trying, to, you're trying to silence the debate. And you're going, no, 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 no. I haven't lost the moment. That wasn't funny. But I can salvage this. I can hang on to this. I can make good of this. And by that time, you've got these two competing voices in your head, right? And now you're all up in your head. And you're missing the conversation because you're trying to silence this debate. But you're also still in that present moment talking to this person, trying to salvage the whole thing. And then at that point, that voice won't let go of you. It presses in harder. Now you're insecure about the way you're standing. What are you doing with your hands? What's your face? What's going on with your face? Are you, that person probably knows you're thinking about stuff outside the conversation because you look so weird. And so you're now more and more self-conscious, more and more insecure, and you're wondering, how do I silence this debate in my head? Meanwhile, you're missing the conversation, and now the conversation's over because you had this debate going on in your head that condemned you, and you feel like a big weirdo, Right? Maybe that example doesn't hit you, but maybe there's another example that would. I and mean, I'm just throwing out a, a couple of random ones here. Maybe this, maybe this happened for you this morning while we were singing songs in worship. This has happened to me before. Where the music is going on and you're singing and there's a moment where you just go, I want to lift my hands and I want to worship God. And then as soon as that happens, there's a voice that presses in on you and says, yeah, but you also want to look super spiritual in front of those around you, don't you? And you say, no, wait a second. That's not what's going on here. I'm not trying to impress. I'm just trying to worship God. Yeah, but it, but it would be nice to look good in front of some people, wouldn't it? And you're going, no. And then all of a sudden, you're not even singing anymore. You're completely ejected from the moment because you're having this debate, are you, whether or not you're trying to use spirituality to look good in front of the people around you. And then before you know it, the singing's all over and it's time for the worship and it's time for the, it's time for the giving and it's time for the announcements and time for the preaching to happen. And you miss the whole moment, right? There's these moments where all of us, there's this voice inside of us that rises up and simultaneously, it wants to entice us. It wants to draw us. It wants to allure us. And then at the same time, it wants to accuse us. And it wants to provide commentary. And some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. I think many of us in this room know exactly what I'm talking about. There's this ongoing debate running all the time. And for some of you, you know exactly what I'm saying. And it's exhausting. It's like a low-grade buzz going on in the back of your head all the time, providing commentary at just about anything you do. And it ties itself to your motives. And all of a sudden you start wondering about yourself and this can affect your mood. This whole conversation inside of you can affect your mood. It can affect the way you think about yourself and it can affect the way that you see yourself and it can affect the way you enter into social settings. The way you enter into a a social space and you think that people are thinking something of you and you're trying to overcorrect what people are thinking of you and present a different version of yourself that you want them to see. And so all of a sudden you have this debate inside of you about how are people seeing me? And then you start saying insecure things to compensate for the things that you think people are thinking of you. And so you're just trying to cover yourself all the time. You hear laughs because we know it's true, right? It can affect the way you look at yourself in the mirror. It can affect the way you think that God must then think about you. There are things that have, and I'm just throwing a couple of tame examples, but for some of you, this is, 
This is very real where there is just a rolling tape of failures that roll through your mind. That's a dark, haunting reminder. And it causes you to wonder, who am I? What's wrong with me? What must God think of me? There are ways in which this kind of stuff can happen and it'll throw you off your mission. There are some things that you're, that you haven't done with your life that you wanted to do and you settled for something else because this running debate tells you that you're not good enough and you could never have done those things. So there was a way you wanted to see your life play out that you bailed on because you feel disqualified because of this running debate. You see, I think it's true. Many of us in this room, we live under the weight of a condemning heart. Huh? We live under the weight of an accusatory conscience and you were never meant to. You were never meant to. That's what's so good about the gospel of Jesus. Jesus has come to free us up from this tyranny of self-absorption, of self-protection, of self-proving. That's exactly what this is, right? Some of you think self-absorption. I know I think this all the time. Self-absorption is that really proud person who's just really trying to show themselves off all the time. That's one way of self-absorption. But there's another way of being self-absorbed where you're just always so self-focused, self-protecting, trying to be self-proving and insecure. That's that's also self-absorption. And Jesus has come to set us free from this. He's come to set us free in a way where we can actually know that God loves us, set us free to be loved by God, to love God back and to love other people. He set us free from this. And that's exactly what this text that we're reading about this morning is addressing altogether. It's addressing this issue of how is it that we can move from a condemning heart? How can we move from a condemning conscience and move to a conscience, move to a heart that's at rest, that's reassured before God. Look back at verse 19. He says this, and by this, we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our hearts before him. So John starts into this passage and he uses language that he's been using throughout the whole book. He has this phrase, he says, by this, we shall know. This is a phrase that John uses over 10 times in, the, in these five chapters. And here we are at chapter three, verse 19. And this is all of a sudden the sixth time he's used that phrase. John is very serious in this book about making absolutely clear that when it comes to a life with God, you and I have not been left in the dark. You and I have not been left to a state of confusion. You and I have not, not been left to wonder about what is life with God and then all of a sudden start making up our own terms. That's what the culture wants to say. The culture is saying life with God is whatever you make it. And John is saying that's not true. By this, you shall know. He is giving very clear directives. What is real Christianity? What is it not? And how do you know where you are in the midst of that? John wants to give us absolute assurance. And so what John is saying down here that by this, we shall know that we're of the truth and reassure our hearts. That's a really big statement. He's making a really big statement, especially if you've been tracking with us, because up to this point, John has made some really hard statements that have caused us to examine ourselves and wonder where we are in this whole thing. Think about some of the things we've read in this book to this point, where he said, if you claim to know Jesus, but you don't keep his commandments, then you're a liar. Chapter two. He goes on from there to say, if you don't love your brother, if you don't love the church, then you're actually still in darkness. From there, he says, if you have the love of the world, if you love the things of the world, then you don't have the love of the Father. Very clear statement. And then last week in chapter three, we read, if you make a practice of sinning, you're a child of the devil. And so John makes some really hard statements. These things have been hard to preach for us over the last few weeks. Like these are not those like chipper, really happy church growth token kind of sermons, right? These are ones that cause you, if you're like me, I've wondered at some points in this series, like, Am I even a Christian? Like, do I know Jesus like I, like I want to, like I think I do? 
And so John's made some really hard statements, but now he's coming down here in verse 19 and he's saying, amidst the high structure of the standard of Christianity that he's built for us, he's saying, yeah, but even in the midst of all that where you're failing all the time, you can have a confidence in knowing that you are of the truth and reassure your heart before God. So now the question is, okay, so how? How can we have this assurance? How can we know that we're of the truth? Well, look at verse, look at verse 20. He says this, whenever your heart condemns you, stop there. Whenever your heart condemns you. So before he gets to the assurance that he's calling for us to have, he speaks to the thing that all of us already know, the thing that we referenced at the beginning of the morning. He speaks to your condemning heart. He speaks to your accusing conscience. Those moments in your life where your heart starts to work against you and it starts to prosecute you. He speaks to that. And notice the way he says it. For whenever your heart condemns you, As if to say, this is not just a one-time experience. And you know that. If you've walked in the Christian life, you know this is not just an occasional thing. This is not just a random thing. That very often, the accusatory heart, it's whenever your heart condemns you, this is a regular reality for those who are walking with Jesus. It's a regular fight that many of us have to grapple with all the time. Whenever your heart condemns you. So this is the voice that rises up inside of you. You know you're not really any good. God doesn't love you. If God loved you, there'd be clear evidence in your life and you still wouldn't be struggling with the things you're struggling with. If God loved you, you'd be over that by now. Look at the mess of your life. You know who you are. You know what you've done. This is not for you. And there's this condemning voice that rises up inside of us. And it starts to press in on us. And many of you know what I'm talking about. And you know when it starts to happen, right? Like it dials up when you want to pray, doesn't it? All of a sudden you want to pray, you want to engage God, and this voice begins to dial up in your mind. You want to worship God. You want to engage God in worship. You want to listen to a sermon. And all of a sudden right now you know this. And sometimes even in this moment maybe, that voice is growing louder all the time. This sermon's not for you. Look who you are. Look what you've done. Or maybe it comes upon you randomly randomly while you're going about your day at work or you're stuck in traffic on the way home, your mind starts to be flooded with thoughts that are condemning. And so, and if I'm able to describe any of this, if it sounds at all like I know what I'm talking about, it's because I do. <laughs> I grapple with this too. This is, this is the normal Christian life in many ways. So like if you're here and you're hearing some of this, listen, if you grapple with this, you're not a freak. You're not. You're not weird. You're not strange. This is the normal Christian life. And so now the question is, right, why? So why do our hearts condemn us? For those who are pursuing Jesus, for those who are getting after the Lord, wanting to kind of live in alignment with him, why do we have a condemning heart? Because it seems like that should go away, right? Well, the reason is, it's because you know his presence. Because you've gone into his presence. Now that might sound a little bit strange to you, but look again at verse 19. Look at where he says we need assurance. He says, we reassure our hearts, where? Before him. We we reassure our hearts in front of God. And so if you're a Christian getting after the Lord and you're still grappling with a condemning conscience, it's because you actually, it's actually an evidence that you know the presence of God. 
Now, again, that might sound strange to you. Let me tell you what I mean. For some of you, when you think about the presence of God, what you think of is comfort and peace and tranquility. And you have these images that look like the cover of a Hallmark greeting card, you know? It's just pastels everywhere, beams of light and folded hands, you know? It's just peace and tranquility. And now don't get me wrong, there is absolute peace in the presence of God and there is comfort. But if we step back a second and we look at the pages of scripture, over and over and over again, men and women who entered into the presence of God and really had an encounter with God, they were absolutely undone. Absolutely. Over and over again, you see men and women getting in front of the Lord and they fall on their faces and all they can think about is how unworthy they are in his presence. Their hearts condemn them. So you think about Isaiah in the Old Testament. He rolls into the temple. He has a vision of God. And the first thing he says is, woe is me, I'm a man of unclean lips. You think about Peter in the New Testament. On the night that Jesus calmed the storm, he looked at Jesus when he recognized even the wind and the waves obey you. He recognized the authority of the Son of God. And his first response isn't, well, man, that's amazing. We're all safe in the boat now. No, his first response was he looked at Jesus and he said with trembling voice, depart from me, for I am a sinful man. His heart condemned him. And why? Why? Because the closer you get to the light, you see how dirty you really are. The closer you approach the great redwood, you see how big it really is. The closer you get to the standard, you see just how much you fall short and your heart condemns you. So on the one hand, a condemning heart is actually, it ought to be a comfort. Like it ought to be a comfort to you. Like there are many ways where I'm 15, 15 years into following Jesus and I feel more sinful today than I did the first day I began this whole race. Like the more you grow closer to Jesus, you actually see yourself. So it's, this is actually a painful comfort, right? Because what it's saying is this, God has revealed himself to you and he hasn't left you to your sin. In fact, what's happening is he's helping you to see your sin for what it really is and just how badly you need him. The closer you get to God, you see how sinful you really are. That's absolutely true. You see how sinful you really are and just how badly you need him. So another way of saying this, you ought to be worried if your experience with God is one where you're never shaken by your heart's condition. Where you ought, you, you ought not to be worried if you struggle with a condemning heart. Where you ought to be worried is if you're never shaken by your heart's condition. If your experience with God is only comfort and reassurance and affirmation, if that's all that it ever is, then what you're experiencing is a God of your own making and not a God of the Bible. It's not the God of the Bible because every time we get around his holiness, our sin is exposed. It has to be. He's that holy. He's that beautiful. He's that majestic and he's that pure. Who we are will be exposed in his presence. And so if your experience with God never convicts you, it's not God you're experiencing. Now hang with me though, because that's heavy. The story doesn't end with a condemning heart. 
All of what's going on in scripture doesn't end with a condemning heart. So what John's going to say next is he's going to give us something to say when our hearts condemn us in order to convince our hearts to sit down. Because that's exactly what needs to happen, right? When your heart begins to condemn you, you know what I'm talking about. When your heart condemns you, you need something to say. You need someone to appeal to. So look at what he says at the end of verse 20. He says, for whenever our heart condemns us, he says, God is greater than our heart and he knows everything. So the first thing that we need to do when our hearts begin to, to press in on us is recognize God is greater than your heart. Okay. So you know your list. You know your list. The list that's read over you. The list of things that you've done. The list of things that you've been caught up in. The list of things that want to remind you and tell you that you have no place in freedom with God. You know that list. Sometimes it's read over your minds loudly. And it's there in your conscience accusing you. Other times it's softly and it's just enough to make you feel uncomfortable, insecure, and anxious. And the best way I know to understand or explain rather what John is talking about here with God being greater than our hearts is to picture what he's saying in the presence of a courtroom. So picture a courtroom. You're there. You're there as the defendant, right? The prosecution steps forward and it begins to present its case. It starts reading, reading a case against you. It starts reading your list, reading down your list, making charges against you, making accusations one after another. And the accusations are right. The accusations are accurate. The case against you is convincing. The evidence is stacked way against you. Now, the question at that moment is, in the court of law, does the prosecution have the authority to condemn you? No. The prosecution doesn't have that kind of authority. That kind of authority only belongs to the judge. Only the judge gets to make a verdict, right? Only the judge does that. So the prosecution can step forward and they can accuse all day long. They can even suggest condemnation, but they don't have the authority to do that, to deliver a sentence. That only belongs to the judge. So do you see where this is going, right? You see how beautiful our gospel is and what John is saying here. So the question, do your heart, does your heart condemn you? Absolutely it does. Mine too. Are the accusations against you right? They're more than right. You're not innocent. Neither am I. But God is greater than our hearts. God is greater than our hearts. In fact, I want to read you the verdict for those who look to Jesus. I want to read you the verdict that God our judge gives. Romans 8 verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation. Absolutely none. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Verse 33. So who's going to bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. God's the one who makes a verdict. 34. So who's going to condemn? Jesus Christ is the one who died. You're going to trump him? More than that, he was raised from the dead and he's now at the right hand of God who's interceding for us. So now who can separate us from the love of God? So do you see that? 
When your heart begins to condemn you, what do you do? You appeal to the true authority who makes the final verdict. God is greater than your hearts and he releases all who would look to Jesus because in him we have a defending attorney, Jesus, our advocate, who stood up for us in chapter two of 1 John. And he stood in our place to receive every bit of the condemnation that we deserved. This is the gospel. Jesus stood in your place. He took condemnation. You go free. But it's not just that God's greater than your heart. Look at also what John says. It's not just that God's greater than your heart. It also says he knows everything. Now take a deep breath right there. He knows everything. Everything. And I love this. I love this about my God. And here's why. Because everyone in the room, there's two groups of people. And all of us are looking for a loophole. All of us do this. So there's one group of people in the room that when your list is read over you, you're the kind of person that wants to stand up and all of a sudden defend yourself, right? Like you want to have an explanation for yourself. You want to try to say, no, it's not that bad. I'm not that bad of a person. And you want to start defending and you want to start saying, no, it's not that bad. And you want to come off looking better than you actually are. That's one group of people. But there's another group of people in the room. And when the list is read over you, you don't even try to explain You don't even try to defend and you can't even rejoice at the fact that there's no condemnation over you because what is the back of your head is going, yeah, that might be true now, but there's going to be something that will happen later that will finally out me for good. There's some that are self-grandiose and there's some that are self-deprecating. Some want to self-prove, others want to self-abuse. But when it says this, that God knows everything, all of a sudden both groups are wiped out. Neither group is true because what's really true is you're worse than you think you are. And the other thing that's true is there's nothing that will ever be brought against you that God doesn't already know. So here's what he's saying, right? There's no evidence that will ever be brought against you in the courtroom of God that God doesn't already know about and that he hasn't already paid for in Jesus. There's not a single piece of anything that could ever happen in your life or that Satan or your heart would want to accuse you of that God didn't already know about the depths of and already pay for in his son Jesus for those who would look to him. Nothing. He knows everything. And his all knowledge, his exhaustive knowledge is good news for you because he uses it to save you, not expose you. Isn't that beautiful? He uses it to save you, not expose you. This is, this is why we love Jesus so much. This is, this is the sense of the great hymn that we sing so often. Before the throne of God, the lyrics will be on the screen. Before the throne of God above, I have a strong, I have a perfect plea. A great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me, he defends me. My name is graven on his hands. My name is written on his heart. And I know that while in heaven he stands, no tongue, no accusation can bid me thence depart. So when Satan tempts me to despair, he tells me of the guilt within. Upward I look and I see him there who made an end of all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just, the judge, was satisfied to look at him and pardon me. God is greater than your hearts and he knows everything. And so what do you do? 
when that voice of condemnation begins to sing out, when that weight of shame begins to accuse your heart, what do you and I do in that moment? What John is telling us here is we start preaching to ourselves. You start preaching. What do you do in that moment? You preach to yourself. I love this quote from Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, one of my favorite English preachers. In his great book, Spiritual Depression, he says this. The main art of spiritual living is to know how to handle yourself. You have to take yourself by the hand and address yourself. Preach to yourself. You must remind yourself of God. Who is God? What is God and what has he done? And what is it that God has pledged himself to do? I say that we must talk to ourselves instead of allowing ourselves to talk to us. Have you realized that most of the unhappiness in your life is due to the fact that you are listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself? And so you preach to yourself. When that commentary begins to roll, you stand up and you proclaim to yourself, soul, hear the good news of Jesus for you. Mind, believe the good news of Jesus for you and who he is, what he has done and what he stands to do in supplying your every need. God is greater than your hearts and he knows everything. Okay, so as we close this morning, I want to speak to a particular group of people that I had on my mind all week long that, that I myself kind of find myself in the camp of from time to time. There's a group of you in the room this morning that as you hear all that we've talked about, there's part of you that your heart wants to leap for joy saying, God really does love me. I see it. But there's also another part of you that's intention. And for whatever reason, as much as you feel that leap for joy, you simultaneously feel the fact that you, for whatever reason, can't allow yourself to take off the handcuffs of condemnation. Both are present there in you. And you're the kind of person that you would say, I hear you. I know God has forgiven me, but I can't forgive myself. I've said this kind of thing, and as a pastor, I hear this sort of thing all the time. I believe God forgives me, but I can't forgive myself. You would say, I know the Bible says that God loves me. I know the Bible says God's forgiven me, but I don't love myself and I can't forgive myself. So if that's you, I don't know what you've done. I don't know what you would feel the need to say that. I don't know what's leading you to that place, but if you're in that place, I just want you to hear me for a second. Do you, do you realize what you're saying when, when you say something like that? When, when you say that, what you're doing is you're, promar, you're, you're promoting your heart over God. You're promoting something in your heart over God, that you're saying something is there that's more significant, something is there that's greater than the verdict of God. So for some of you in the room that feel this, that know this, there's something for you that is the real and actual source of feeling good about yourself. And in whatever it is, it's more of a source than God. There's, a, there's something that's a source for you that helps you feel good about yourself and it's a greater source than God. And whatever that thing is, that's your functional savior. It's not a savior at all. And you would not say that's my savior. You would say Jesus likely. 
But by the way you're responding, by the way you carry forward with that kind of unbelief, that's your functional savior. And so maybe for you, right? Like there's something that you've done, something that you failed at, something you failed to achieve, something that someone did to you, something that you've been around, something that there's been something that you let someone down maybe. And that thing was the thing you were looking to for validation, for your sense of self, for your sense of feeling good and knowing kind of who you are and where your life was headed. But because you failed at that thing, you feel completely handcuffed in being able to move forward. Like there's no hope for you. And if that's you, I mean, just hear me on this for a second. If you've, if you've confessed your sins to Jesus, if you've confessed this brokenness to Jesus, yet you continue to beat yourself up, what you're saying is that the beatings that Jesus took for you weren't enough. You're saying that wasn't enough. If you're caring for, like it's what you're saying is that there is a verdict out there higher than God. So Christian, everyone, you don't have to beat yourself up anymore. Like that, you don't have to hate yourself anymore. Listen, beating yourself up does not honor God. I know some who live in this place, I know when I have lived in this place, it feels like somehow if I can hate myself enough or hate that thing enough, then finally God will be pleased with me and then finally I can move forward. Listen, hating yourself does not honor God because he loves you and he sent his son for you. And when you do that, you're saying his son wasn't enough for you. Hating yourself doesn't honor God and it will not cleanse you. Jesus was beaten up for you. He took it for you. And his righteousness now is really offered to you free. No strings attached. It really is. It really, it really is. He knows everything. Jesus knows every detail. He's looked down into your heart and he's seen those things that you know that are present there, but he's also seen things that you haven't even seen yet. He's looked down into your heart and he knows every single detail. And he's come up. He's come up and he says, there is no condemnation for you. There is no condemnation for you. I've taken it. I've taken it. See, God stands up. God stands up for every heart who would look to him, for every conscience who would look to him. God stands up for you and says, I will clean it. Romans 8, 34. Who is to condemn? Jesus Christ is the one who died. More than that, he was raised from the dead. He's at the right hand of God now, interceding for us. So who can separate us from the love of God? And by this, by Jesus our Christ, we shall know that we're of the truth and reassure our hearts before him.